Hey, dear listeners, today's guest is the very lovely and very talented actress Sierra Bravo. I saw her movie Cherry a few days ago, and I still can't get it out of my head. Not only is Sierra impressive to watch, it's really inspiring to talk with her. You'll see. Later in the episode, I'm joined again by life coach, marriage therapist, and clinical director of Growing Self-Counseling and Coaching, Dr. Lisa Marie Bobby, who is back with more much-needed wisdom and advice. As always, thank you for your kind words and telling your friends about our show. If you have a story you want to share, please go to our website, unqualified.com, and find the link to get in touch. Okay, here's Sierra. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris. Hi. Hi, Ciara. It's so nice to meet you. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to talking. Are you in Los Angeles? Mm -hmm. I am, yeah. Okay. I read on your bio that you live with your family in Kentucky, but maybe that's old. Oh, yeah. That's old news. Old news. Do you go back there a lot? All the time. Anytime I can get back there. Of course, with COVID, it's been really difficult. But I know if I did make it back at least twice a year, my mom would have my head. I've never been to Kentucky. It's a beautiful place to live, and it's a really beautiful place to grow up. I think I was lucky that I lived like 15 minutes from Cincinnati, Ohio, so I still had a taste of like a city growing up. So I wasn't really like trapped in the middle of nowhere, but it was very much so a suburban upbringing, which I think forced a lot of creativity in me just for like the purpose of entertainment. You know, I didn't have like everything moving around me, so I felt like I had to make my own fun. So you grew up kind of using your imagination. Yeah, definitely. And like playing in the woods. (laughs) 100%. 100%. (laughs) Yeah. My parents didn't let me watch a lot of TV. They're amazing. And they listen to this podcast. (laughs) But they wanted me to kind of be a kid for as long as possible. And I was such a late bloomer. Mm -hmm. So I was still like playing a lot of imaginary games. And I remember kids like kind of making fun of me for it, which I think was really important now in hindsight, though. Right. So we finished watching Cherry. Oh, my God. (laughs) And as we like enter these waters of a very intense, beautiful movie, Mm -hmm. I mostly do comedies. And even if I'm in something dramatic, I usually have a ding dong role. (laughs) But I did this play in high school about the Holocaust. And my mom told me afterwards that I was very somber during the time. And I hadn't realized really how performances change oneself. Mm -hmm. And during the process of creating and embodying Mm -hmm. a character that goes through a journey that's not similar to one's own, that is intense and difficult, how that shifts you in ways that maybe you don't realize. And Ciara, your role as Emily, I mean, how would you describe your emotional experience making this movie? It was taxing. Actually, Ciara, would you mind describing your character, Emily, a little bit to our listeners before we talk about it? Of course. So Emily is a character preface this by saying she is a three-dimensional human being. She's a fully realized person. But in this movie, we are seeing her through the eyes of Tom's character, Cherry. That's interesting that you point that out. Mm -hmm. Why do you say that? I just think the whole movie, it's filtered through the lens of Cherry. We're listening and watching him tell this story. So I think everyone that you're seeing, everything you're experiencing, you're experiencing it through him. 
there are these beautiful shots of you in his memory, essentially. Mm -hmm. Emily is not objectified, but something along those lines. (laughs) I think their relationship is certainly the backbone, the beating heart. It's the needle that threads all of these other stories together. But we meet her as a college student and we watch her and Cherry fall in love which is, of course, always a terrifying, vulnerable experience, (laughs) as anyone who has fallen in love knows. And we follow their journey through marriage and then watching Cherry come home from the Iraq war, suffering with PTSD and falling into addiction, which Emily in turn falls into as well. I remember that one experience that I had, it feeling satisfying because it felt like I could access raw emotions more easily. Right. But you have to walk the fine line of being able to access those raw emotions and make sure that they're there for you, but not allowing them to take over your personal life. And that's what's like impossible. (laughs) (laughs) It's like lunch. Yeah, exactly. And you're like, uh, what? Uh, You're still like sobbing, covered in your own tears and like half naked. (laughs) Someone's running in with a robe. Like you're like, oh, great. Right. Uh, yeah. How's your day? (laughs) Were the directors, it was both Russo brothers, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did they take into consideration like timing of hard scenes? They did. They were incredible about that. They're super respectful directors and they made sure that the environment was always safe for us to go to the places that we needed to go to. And they did a great job with scheduling as well because it was really taxing on us physically. You know, both of us losing weight for the role and just like shredding yourself to bring yourself to the places you need to go to for these characters. But they were very respectful about that. And they made sure to schedule like the dope life scenes, which is what we call that section of the movie in the beginning. So we had like a couple months prior to like lead up and prepare ourselves mentally and physically for these roles, get the hard stuff out of the way, which also gave us a chance to really get to know each other, which made it easier going into the romance aspect of the film later in the shooting schedule. But yeah, they were wonderful to work with. They were really respectful about creating a nice and healthy environment for us to reach those emotional levels, but also encouraging laughter. (laughs) I know it's such a dark movie to have to work on, but I don't think I've ever laughed so much on a set before. I think that laughter comes naturally from a release of tension. Exactly. I don't know. I get the impression that people must think that making a comedy, we're laughing all the time. (laughs) But, you know, it's obviously hard work. Comedy is a hundred times more difficult than drama. But I don't think necessarily you don't need that emotional tension release that you have to have when you're kind of feeling so raw. I bet you're right. I bet funny shit happened. I bet you guys were like just cracking each other up. Yeah. Out of necessity almost. 100%. And then I think also when you're going to these emotional lengths, like you become a little bit delusional at a certain point. And so the stupidest shit becomes so funny all of a sudden because you just... You're like, I'm hungry. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I watched The House Bunny on occasion. One of my favorite movies of all time. By the way, we watched it during quarantine and it was a healing experience. (sighs) Thank you. It was one of the highlights of my life. I look at that movie and I'm like, I remember how hungry I was. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. All right, so I'm going to ask you a series of life questions, if you don't mind. Let's go for it. My first question is, what was your living arrangement like when you first lived on your own? So when I first lived on my own, I was 18. I guess there's two versions. So my mom would travel with me for a while when I was younger, and I had to come out here for work. She would always be the one to travel with me. And then once I hit 18 years old, she was like, I'm going home to live my own life. And I was like, please do. 
thank you for all of the years you've given me. Wait, was it really that? No, it wasn't that cold. But <laughs> I don't think any like 16, 17 year old has, at least I didn't like, you know, super tight, healthy relationship with their mother. Or maybe it's tight, but maybe it's not healthy. Oh, super unhealthy. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I think it's also necessary to have that, not resentment, but like that tension between the two of you so that you would want to leave. Otherwise, it's like, why would you ever leave your home? And especially growing up in the industry, I think the kids grow up faster. I'm 44. I can't believe I sound so old. But also you being in the industry, mm-hmm. you were feeling so independent at such a much younger age, I'm sure. Right. Because you have to be. And you're surrounded by adults. You're working. Right. Okay. So sorry. Back to 18. My mother's an angel, just to preface that. She's the most wonderful woman in the world. I would not be where I am without her. But at that point, it was like, yeah, I mean, it sucks because, you know, you have to recognize how much she'd given up so that I was able to chase my dream. And like, she deserves to have a life as much as I do. And at that point, I felt ready to sort of like take things on my own. But it ended up working really well because my sister graduated college at the same time. So she is also in the industry, not an actress, thank God heard horror stories about sibling competitions. Very tricky. Yeah, yeah. But like she's in the industry, so it's nice to have someone who understands the business as well and like operating in circles that oftentimes intersect. But we ended up moving in together and we've been living together for like five, almost six years now. For some reason, I always imagine 18 year olds at the Oakwoods. Oh my God. That's the first piece of advice I was given was don't move to the Oakwoods. <laughs> we came out here and my manager at the time was like, don't do it. He's like, get an Airbnb, rent a house somewhere, don't do the Oakwoods. Yeah, for our listeners, the Oakwoods are sort of this notoriously huge complex of apartments that's right next to Warner Brothers and Universal. So you're, you know, ready to go audition your little heart out and a ton of actors stay there temporarily. Mm -hmm. And so like you would be around the pool or whatever and people would be talking about their auditions and stage parents. Anyway, it is its own microclimate of intensity. Exactly. (laughs) There's no reprieve when you're living at the Oakwoods. I don't know. It's so interesting coming from a place like Cincinnati and moving to Los Angeles. It was such a culture shock because they're completely different worlds. Completely. How do you like Los Angeles? Like on a scale of one to 10? See, it's really grown on me. That's the thing is if you would have asked me four years ago, I'd say three, get me out of here. Today, honestly, it's like it's seven and a half, eight. Which is great. (laughs) So wait, what shifted? It's just finding your group here. It's finding, you know, the people that are honest and true, just like solid individuals that make the world a difference. And then also understanding that this city is so much more than just this industry. Like Los Angeles as a city is jam-packed with so much culture and good food and interesting people. And if you just like step outside of Hollywood for 0.7 seconds, you can recognize how great it actually is to live here. Yeah. In Los Angeles, it's a little bit harder to find its secrets and its specialness. Right. Because you're not like walking around interacting with it in the same way that you would be New York. Yeah. Have you lived in a bunch of different areas in Los Angeles? I've stayed mostly in the same area, but it's because I have a place that I really love. That's good. All right. Do you have a favorite movie that you could watch over and over? Yeah, I do. I've got a few. I've got my like movies that I go to when I need like an emotional pick me up. That for me is Whip It. Do you remember that movie? Yeah. Elliot Page and Drew Barrymore and Kristen Wiig. Yeah. About roller derby. Mm-hmm. I love that movie. 
And every time I watch it, my scrawny little ass is like, I want to join a roller derby league. <laughs> like, where I just like, I know I'd get snapped in half in a second, but I don't know. It just leaves me with this, like, I feel like powerful afterwards. Like I can accomplish or do anything. I love that. Do you have a lot of close female friends? Yeah. A lot of close female friends. I think those are some of my favorite relationships and favorite friendships. Here in Los Angeles? Yeah. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. That's why you're at like an eight. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Have you learned anything about yourself during quarantine? I've learned that I love being inside. (laughs) I know it's nothing profound, but I was like, wow, I didn't realize I was waiting for someone to give me a reason to not leave my house. I was like, it feels great. I'm so with you. (laughs) I've learned that I like to knit and I like to puzzle and I don't really like to shower. Yes, that's a big one for me too. Big one. I did it today. (laughs) I can tell my hair is still wet. It took me that long. (laughs) I was sitting there last night. I was talking to my partner and I was like, dude, I can't get out of bed. He's like, just shower in the morning. I was like, no, I don't think you understand. I don't know if I will also be able to get out of bed then to get myself to shower. But I did it. All for you, Anna. And I did it for you. (laughs) What's the question that has become like the thematic question as you're doing press? And do you enjoy doing press? I do enjoy doing press. I mean, it's a love-hate relationship for sure. Like we were talking about before, I find that about an hour or so into it, all of a sudden my brain just like goes blank from anxiety I'm not always super great about talking to people. And also I put this pressure on myself. Like I want to sound put together and smart, but not feel like a forced version of myself, which is so difficult to do. (sighs) Yeah. I want to be able to answer questions well and put thought into them. But then when you're answering the same, you know, five or six questions over and over and over again, it's like, how do I make this interesting for you? Like, I know it's part of it, but like, I want to give you something. I know. Tricky. Yeah, I know that that part is difficult. And what also gets difficult for me is if I'm not paying attention, Yep. if the questions are starting to sound the same, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm going into my stock answer with zero connection to the question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, majority of the time. It's, again, lights on, no one home. I'm just yeah. like, <laughs> spitting it out. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, what talent <laughs> What talent or ability would you most like to have? I'd like to be able to speak more languages, like pick up languages quicker. Do you have a favorite? Like if you could take a pill? <sighs> I hate to say French, but it's French. Gorgeous. I know. It's just so beautiful. I studied it in high school. That's my resolution this year is to get back into it and like actually take a class. Oh, I like it. Okay. What is your relationship like with social media? I hate it, but it's like a drug sometimes. You know, you get started and you just can't stop scrolling, which of course is a purpose. But I fantasize about the day that I can delete all my social media accounts. I do too. On your Instagram, you have some videos 
I think there's like a 16 second video of sky and ocean. And then I read that you wanted to be a documentarian. Mm -hmm. Will you tell us a little bit about this? I mean, I love what you did. I love your presence. Thank you. Well, in terms of social media, I felt like what I always struggle to come to terms with is how important it is to our career. That's always really bothered me that numbers have started to matter so much because I don't think it's a fair judgment of a person or their talent or their ability. So I think that's a main reason why I resist it. It's also just like not a fair representation of a full person. I think that can be really damaging mentally. But for my own personal Instagram, I wanted to turn it into like a sort of snapshot into what matters to me and what brings joy to my life, which of course ends up most of the time being my dog and traveling. But I've picked up this habit of taking videos between like 16 and 30 seconds of moments that either catch my eye or make me feel something or moments that I want to remember. Because I found recently I'm having a hard time like recalling things that I would like to just keep at the front of my brain. They escape to the depths. Why? I have no idea. It's like a recent thing. It's not super recent. I think it's something that I've always You know, I sit down and I have conversations with like, again, my grandparents are my family members and they're able to tell these incredible stories from their time growing up with such great detail. And I'm sitting here and I'm like, shit, have I lived before today? Well, they just fill it in. Well, I'm sure (laughs) they get very creative. But now I'm sitting here, I'm like, damn, I was like, wait a second. Have I existed before today? What did I have for breakfast? And I know that's part of just being a human being, but I want to remember more. So instead of like bullet journaling, I just take videos because I find I prefer sound. It helps me immerse myself back into a memory more. And then I find I'm able to remember more of the day. Like I can go back into that moment and grab bits from like before that and after that and sort of relive it in a nice way. I love that. All right. Let's get on to relationships. So you have felt love in your life. Yeah, I think so. Like how many times have you fallen in love, do you think? Only once. Recently? Yeah. So was that like within the last two years, do you think? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And are you guys still together? We are. I love it that you smile when you talk about this person. He's wonderful. I'm so glad. And have you guys been quarantining together? So we got to spend the first three months of quarantine we got to spend together. But he's Irish and he does not have an American visa. He doesn't have like a work visa or anything. So after 90 days, he had to get out of the country. So we've been apart for about seven months now, which has been... God. Exactly. That is exactly how it feels. It's probably the most emotional pain I've ever been in, but it's interesting how the body is able to adjust to these sorts of things. So you guys have been apart for seven months? I think so. It's six or seven. When will you get to see each other again? As soon as those borders open back up. Shit. I know. It's what's tricky. You know, I always think about like the physical sensations of heartbreak Mm -hmm. and homesickness, which are kind of linked. Super similar. Yeah. And it can feel in the physical sense. To me, it feels like you feel it in your gut Mm -hmm. in just like the slow, constant ache. It's like a dull pain that's just constantly there, which is very interesting to feel that in a new way. And it's something that if you're not careful, can very easily taint the rest of how you feel everything else. Yeah. Yes. That's a great point. That's a great point. You're right. Like it all kind of gets filtered through that dull ache, which isn't ideal. (laughs) It's certainly not, which is why it becomes so important to like find a way to ease that pain. Well, that makes me think about what you brought up earlier in regards to Cherry Mm -hmm. and how we see Emily through the protagonist Mm -hmm. played by Tom Holland. Do you think that was a fair portrayal? 
Because I did. I thought the movie was really profound. Thank you. But I wonder, did you feel that it was fair in that sense, I guess? That it was a complete picture of a character or was it modified? I think it's a fair portrayal of the character and I think it's fair to the story that we're telling. You know, I think it would be different if it was like Emily's specific struggle with addiction. I mean, obviously being a couple is an extremely important part of the movie and an extremely important part of the story. But like I said, it is still Cherry's story. It's still his life that we're learning about. So I would say it's fair in that way. I don't think that we lost anything by not going deeper into her backstory or getting to know her more as a person. I love that you recognize that. All right. If acting suddenly became illegal, how would you make a living? (laughs) This is the question that through my teenage years, I thought about every day. And it was terrifying because I actually don't know. This is the type of thing where I'm sitting here and I'm like, what other skills do I have? I'm so with you. And I don't know if there are any. (laughs) But okay, for another like dream fantasy career that I would love to have, one that I just learned about recently. Okay, there's two actually. First and foremost, tree doctor. Yeah. I just think it's the coolest thing. I think it's amazing. Also, you make stupid money. Oh, I didn't know that part. Yeah. (laughs) But it's just such a specialty. But I also love this idea of being able to understand something like a tree, which is so often just like looked over and being able to look at the way a trunk has grown and understand when a tree has experienced trauma or like things like that. And there's a quietness. Right. A serenity. 100%. Just a connectedness to nature is something I realize I really yearn for. And the second one, I guess there's this certain position. I don't know if it's like in the world of park rangers or not, where they put you away in these like faraway locations in these cabins on the top of these beautiful hills where you can see over the valley and you just watch for fires and you report like the incoming weather and you look out for smoke and fires and you live in solitude in these beautiful places. I was going to ask you about that, like the idea of solitude. I grew up in Washington State and there are a bunch of still these old fire lookout towers that people did live in. You can hike to some of them and they're amazing. And I do think of myself as a person who is very good at being alone Mm -hmm. or with my partner. I love just that kind of quietness, but I always have. I don't think it's a direct correlation between acting and having the intensity of sort of the public performance idea like healthy solitude. Exactly. Which I think it's so interesting because typically when people think about actors, they think about someone who desires being the center of attention at all times always, who like needs that in their life. And as much, of course, they thrive on a certain level of that, I very much so need solitude to feel like myself. I know. All right. On what occasion do you lie? I usually lie when I feel like it's going to save somebody else's feelings. But then I caught myself doing it in a time when I should not have been doing it. Not necessarily lying, but withholding the truth. Obviously, the outcome was uncomfortable. The outcome was extremely uncomfortable. But in the end, I was like, okay, I should have done this sooner so that it wouldn't have been a thing. You know what I mean? Yes. It's like you're trying to save yourself and the person you're lying to from this level of pain. But in turn, you make the pain 110 times worse by not just being honest about it. So that was a hard lesson to learn. I think in our industry, too, it's not good business to shit on a project. Oh, God, no. Oh, God, no. No way. Yeah, exactly. So we're forced to be, like, flowery and enthusiastic about everything. (laughs) Yes. Right. Yeah. But that's also why I love when I see actors or people in our industry who are being so honest about projects. 
like watching Robert Pattinson go back and talk about Twilight and being able to like laugh about it and tease about the experience of what that film was and making it. I was like, oh, God, what a relief that at a certain point you can go back and just be like, fuck it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) This movie was bonkers. (laughs) It was, you know what I mean? I enjoy that and I find that so refreshing. But yeah, I'd like to keep working and not burn any bridges. (laughs) Yeah, I'm with you on that. What is the most important advice you've ever been given? The most important piece of advice I'd ever been given was from my friend, Lindsay, who has a wealth of knowledge, the wisest woman I've ever met. But she told me once recently, if you recognize that something's a fountain for you, stay connected to it and a lot will flow from that. So like, if you recognize that something's bringing joy into your life or bringing you peace, stay connected to that thing. Keep doing it. Keep pursuing it. You know, get a hobby, basically. But she's like, in staying connected to that, a lot will flow from it for you. Have you found what that is? Yeah. Well, for me, for a while, it certainly has been acting because, of course, in any career, like the lows are really low. And when you're sitting there and you think you're never going to work again and you're giving it your all and you're like, oh, shit, I guess I need to figure out what my plan B is. Best go to tree doctor school, (laughs) you know, in staying connected to it. I found there's always a reward. But also, I think I found like in relationships, that's been really important as well, like feeding and nurturing them and staying connected to the people who, you know, I leave their presence and I feel like a better version of myself and I just feel comforted and taken care of and grateful that they're in my life. Like staying connected to those types of people and those moments in relationships has brought a lot of joy into my life. How do you negotiate the long distance waters? I don't know. Like, you know, obviously every relationship is unique and you have to find out what works best for you. I'm so lucky in that my partner is like the king of monogamy and like the most trustworthy, respectful, kind, understanding, caring person in the world at like 24, which make that make sense. So it's never felt difficult in the ways that I think people would typically imagine. I think when you think about long-term relationships, a lot of people worry about infidelity, which is not something that's ever crossed my mind. And I feel very lucky about that. It's tricky to feel connected to a person that you're so far away from. And that's what we've really been focusing on is finding ways to stay connected, whether it be like making sure we're blocking out time where we can FaceTime and like have a show that we watch together that we can talk about. Things that feel normal, you know, when you're together in a room, you can sit down on the couch at the end of the day and watch a show or like talk about a book you've been reading and, you know, have that shared activity. So that's what we try to do is find those shared activities. Have you been to Ireland? Many, many many times. Yeah. I'm ready to move. I've just been to Dublin briefly for a press, but I feel like it would be Cinderella's shoe, Ireland. For some reason, I have it stuck in my head that I would really fit in there. You should go. You should go. What's also amazing, especially as an American, is it's so easy to get from one side of the country to the other. Like, I feel like you could drive the whole thing in a couple days and it wouldn't even be a stress. I find that to be one of the big cultural differences is I'll be talking to my partner or, or his family and I'll be like, yeah, it's like a three hour drive. It's not that bad. And they're like, three hours? <laughs> like packing snacks and making sure everyone has blankets. Like three hours is a journey. Yeah. For me, it's, you know, going to work and back. So I find that really funny. But no, completely. You have to go there. It's a beautiful country and it's just such a breath of fresh air. The first time I was there, this was when my partner and I had first started dating. We weren't even really dating yet at this point. And I was over there to like celebrate my 21st birthday. Of course, celebrate 21 in a country where you're legal at 18. So wait, you went there, but you guys weren't really together yet? 
So I had already had plans to go there. And then we had filmed a show together a couple months prior. And I was like, I'm going to be over there. Let's hang out. Happy accident. (laughs) Amazing. So wait, there must have been like flirtation and attraction when you guys were working together. Of course, of course. But I'm always very hesitant about dating my coworkers. Yeah. It feels like such a cliche, but then also like, oh my God, what a nightmare if it doesn't go right. And then it was a TV show. And what if we got picked up for a second season and we had to work together? Like, that's my biggest fear. Also, I just adored him so much as a person. I wanted him to be in my life for a long time. And I always worry about like getting into relationships and ruining the possibility of having that person in my life for an extended period of time. I can't believe how pragmatic you are. That's amazing. Oh my God. At 20, you're 23? 23, yeah. I was like dating my first husband and I just always threw caution to the wind when it came to love. Mm Mm-hmm. But isn't that kind of nice? Isn't that great? Well, in a way, do you feel it? I'm like, I'm sure it comes back to bite you and that. But isn't there something like (laughs) sort of fun and romantic? Like, I don't know. Of course, listen to me. I'm the complete opposite where I'm like, no, we can't love each other because I love you. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, but you were much wiser. (laughs) I was just like a cute guy like me. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Okay. Yep, totally. Yep. See you at the altar. (laughs) Oh, okay. First time in Ireland. And I thought I was texting. I was texting my sister at the same time as my partner. And I thought I was texting my sister. And I was like, oh, my God, I just had the lightest period of my life. I have no bloat here. I was like, this is amazing. I was like, my body just feels so right when I'm in this country. I don't know what it is. (laughs) And then my partner texted back and he was like, so glad to hear. And I was like, oh, my God, I was mortified. I was like, wow, what a shame we can never see each other again. (laughs) That wall immediately knocked down. He was like laughing about it, but not even. He was like, it wasn't a big deal. I love it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Do you have a reality television indulgence? (laughs) Yeah, I do. I've got a few. The Real Housewives are always good, especially the new Salt Lake City. Just got into that. It's a wild ride. Also, when it's on Love Island, are you familiar? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The British people. It's a garbage fire of a show. Yes. And I love every moment of it. It's troubling. It's a troubling show to watch. We're doing a Bachelor binge right now. How do you feel about that? Do you like The Bachelor? I do. I have a hard time getting into it. I like it for just the show. Mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by the structure of 30 women sort of under the spell by construct of the show to be predisposed to adoring this person Mm -hmm. and how The Bachelor construct walks this line of promoting 
promoting sort of a fairy fantasy and like the glossiness, Mm -hmm. yet it (laughs) sort of winks at itself. It's just sort of fascinating in that realm. It's also a little bit depressing, though. Yeah. Do you think if you were asked to be a producer on one of these shows, do you think you could do it? No. Because I almost feel like there's this maniacal sense you have to have where it's like, how do you make good television? I think I could coach a winner pretty well. Like, if they gave me, like, a couple of strong contestants, I really think I would be good at being like, here's the game plan, ladies. (laughs) Let's sit down. Let's talk about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. See, I love that. That's great. You would be like a coach, wouldn't you? I love it. Yeah, I'm deep in the Bachelor world. See, that's my NFL. That's my sports. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's so messed up. It's so twisted to think about. But if they were to make a show about producers and they each have a group of women and it is almost like that's the game, that's the reality show. Yeah. I'd eat that up. I'd join that fantasy league. I love it. I love it. (laughs) All right. Sierra, what haven't you taken the time to learn about? Actually, like finances, (laughs) accounting. So with you. I want to learn. I need to. I don't know if I... Well, I clearly don't want to. No, no, no. Of course not. We would have done it already. I know. I don't think I'm ever actually going to feel like an adult until I stop calling my mom to like ask about tax stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's jarring when you apply it to like auditioning. <laughs> like No. Oh, my God. No. It's like the quickest way to send me into a panic attack. Like an actual panic attack is when I start thinking about finances. And it's like, oh, God. Well, I need, and as an actor like you never know where your next paycheck's coming from and yeah you spend all of this money to work you know you're paying rent in different cities so that you can do this job or what have you and it's like (laughs) the second I look into it's like oh my god it really defines though so much of our life in this industry you know we have the job for three months with the exception of television shows but still there's always zero permanence even these days and so there is that feeling of like fuck I gotta get the next job I have to have some degree of security Mm -hmm. in an industry where there isn't any none (laughs) and that's stressful (laughs) Uh, yeah yeah you feel it you feel Yeah. Every second of every day, especially because my family's not in the industry at all. Like I'm the first person who's ever gone down this career path and they're all very business minded. We've got a family business back home. And so money is like a big thing to think about. And I'll be talking to them and they're like, well, you know, you have to pay these bills. Like you need to take that job. Right. And I was like, yes, I get it. But also like I'm over here like the creative familiar. I know. Right. It's like you have to have a strategy. I am pay your mortgage. Exactly. Exactly. I also feel like there is this pressure to not be, not a sellout, but like there is this pressure to like, oh, yeah. you know, not take a certain type of work because it's not considered interesting or like high end or like you're not a real actor, which I think is just complete bullshit. But there is that pressure to be like an interesting actor that only takes a certain type of role. <laughs> when I was going through my first divorce. <laughs> <laughs> But I was like, I'm not sure if I should do Yogi Bear. My agent was like, you know, I think you need to do Yogi Bear because you do have a mortgage. And I was like, yeah. So then I'm in New Zealand, like, Yogi. When you're right, you're right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's life as an actor. Yeah. What is a trait you dislike in others? I don't like pretentious people. It really rubs me the wrong way to the point where I almost get some sort of like sick sense of joy from arguing with people that I find pretentious. It's almost like sport for me just because it makes me feel good, which is so messed up. And I would love to talk to my therapist about that. 
you know, people who are just unnecessarily looking down on other people because they don't watch the same movies or they eat a different way or they don't know something that somebody else knows. I think it's just an unnecessarily cruel way to live. I feel like the 20s are ripe with that. Oh, God, yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. And I think it's an important part of living life is to find your voice and a way to articulate your passions. Mm -hmm. But I definitely play devil's advocate. Like, I don't do that anymore because I feel too tired. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, okay. Oh, I wanted to ask you specifically, what intimidates you? I get intimidated by like truly intelligent people who just, you know, when you speak to them and it's like, wow, you know it, you know it all. But also I feel myself encouraged by that level of knowledge as well, because I want to have that same grasp on the world. I'm intimidated by people who went to college, basically, is what I'm saying. We talk to a lot of actors that I think feel that way. I think you articulated it. Right. Which is the first step. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But I went to college because my dad is a professor. My brother's a professor. We have like a lot of family that's in academia. I know that it served me well in terms of critical thinking and life experience. I had a miserable time for the most part. And no one has asked me about it since. (laughs) Okay. Do you believe in ghosts or aliens? I love talking about ghosts and aliens. Great. This is actually my favorite question to ask people when I first meet them is, have you had any ghost experiences? Have you had any ghost experiences? No. Okay. I very much so have. Okay. I also went to Catholic school my whole life. So it's a very troubling relationship I have. (laughs) But I have just like this curiosity for spirituality and not necessarily in a religious aspect, like in terms of Catholicism or Christianity or anything like that. It's just like, what else is there in life? Like what else is going on that we can connect to, to drive energy from? But let me tell you my ghost story. So my friend Nina, she was an old friend of mine from school growing up. She lived in this house that used to be a uh, where priests live. <laughs> it was a priest house. So I didn't know this until later, but I guess her whole family had just like accepted the fact that it was haunted and they had all had experiences. And that was just part of living in that home. I didn't know that when I agreed to sleep over there and we were watching Saturday Night Live. So we were in her den and she had fallen asleep and through the doorway of her den was the hallway that you could see into the dining room and then in the kitchen. And I heard the sound of dishes being done and dishes being put away. And I kept looking over and all of the lights were off. I was like, maybe her mom's just like her family's so comfortable in their house. Like they don't need the lights on to clean the dishes and put it away. I was just trying to make it make sense. And then I heard footsteps coming down the stairs. They were like heavy boot steps. And I was like, oh, thank God. Like her dad's still up. He's going to come like check in on us because I was starting to get spooked at this point. And I look over and I see clear as day, these boots, these like black boots. And I was like, oh, that's not her dad. I was terrified. So I pretended to be asleep. And then it was the figure of a man in the doorway. And he stood there for a few seconds. And then he just like turned and kept walking down the hallway. And I didn't know what to do. So I pretended to be asleep. That's like my fear tactic. I was playing dead. Until Nina woke up and she was like, oh, should we go to bed? And I was like, yeah, I think maybe we should definitely go to bed and get out of here immediately. I was shaking. And I woke up the next day and I told her that story. And she was like, oh, yeah. She was like, that happens all the time. What? Yeah. She's like, you wouldn't believe the other night I was laying in bed and I was asleep. And I heard someone whispering my name and they're like, Nina. 
Nina. And I rolled over and I was like, what, mom? And no one was there. And I was like, you need to move. Oh, my God. It's like Father Peter or something. Right. Who was that? I was like, quit looking at us, sir. Enjoying Saturday Night Live. Yeah, that was scary. That shook me to my core. Okay. All right. All right. Because I've never had that experience, I always look at it with a degree of cynicism, not your story. But Well, you can. That's not going to hurt my feelings. Well, it did occur to me like maybe somebody broke into the house late at night. Right. (laughs) Which also would make sense. But it wasn't like I could see through the being. There was a weird, like it wasn't physically there. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's so hard to explain because I couldn't see the man. I couldn't see any details. I just, it was almost like he was wearing a cloak, but not over his head. I honestly don't know how to describe it other than I could see the boots clear as day. But also the hallway that he walked down into, it's actually like right when you turn right out of the den, it was an elevator and the elevator didn't move. And how old were you? I was 13, 14. Obviously, our listeners can't see you, but Mm -hmm. like you have a specific intensity with this story. Right. But the thing is, like, it's easy for me to believe because I've always believed in an afterlife, not necessarily heaven or hell or angels or demons. I just like believe that there's some else out there. So what's your relationship with Catholicism now? I'm not really a religious person. I don't really have any strong feelings for or against. I do believe that there is like life after death. I just don't know in what sense. Like, I don't think that there's some big man in the sky dictating all of our lives. Right. One of the biggest rules is thou shall not judge. That's like technically God's job. But then we create all of these rules to judge the people around us. You didn't go on Sunday? (laughs) Exactly. And we decide who's good and who's bad based on whether or not they congregate or, you know, believe in the big man, not on their actual actions as human beings. And that always bothered me. I'm not saying that every single person who subscribes to religion is that way. I think that there's a lot of hope and joy that can exist within religion, but it's also just like a great way to feel guilty all the time. Yeah, yeah. I grew up without religion, but a lot of guilt. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if there's any escaping it. (laughs) (laughs) It's just life. It's just existing, huh? Sierra, okay, wait. I want to ask you... Do you have a favorite book or author? It's so cliche, but I do really like Joan Didion. Yeah. I just think she's like the ultimate cool girl. And I really appreciate her curiosity and the way that she approached life and asked all of these questions. I find her writing very easy to read. She's so honest and frank. It's refreshing. Yes, it is. Really dig it. Okay. What is your relationship with fame? I struggle with the idea of fame a lot. That's actually what intimidates me to circle back. Being in this career, people have or feel like they deserve a certain level of access to you as a human being. I'm okay with sharing when I want to share it. You know what I mean? Yes. And I'm glad that we're finally having the conversation of how detrimental that can be with the whole like Free Britney movement and documentary that just came out. I think it's really important that we have the conversation of the negative side effects of fame, especially with women in this industry. It's not something that I want. I don't want to be famous because what I really love is the actual act of acting. Like I want to be on set and I want to be making movies. That's where I have fun. That's where I feel comfortable and challenged in a healthy way. Like that's what I want to be doing for the rest of my life is just feel proud of and satisfied with the work that I'm doing. And I want to be able to like go get a cup of coffee 
it really bothers me that people feel like they deserve every aspect of a person because of their job, because they get to watch them on TV. It also really troubles me that people get to know actors as a character and then think that they know them as a real person. That's why I do my best like in my own personal life to not develop opinions about people that I don't know personally. Like, of course, you hear things in the tabloids and sometimes like, yes, it very much so is the truth. But if it's just like gossip for the sake of gossip and hate for the sake of hate, like I try my best not to develop any opinions about people or stories that are frankly none of my business. Completely. You know what I wanted to ask you, though, about the idea of fame? Have you felt intoxicated by it? I love it. My experience with it in my 20s was heady Mm -hmm. and at times, yeah, intoxicating, which concerned me because I understood the value is not real. Mm -hmm. Whatever inflation socially I had didn't feel legitimate. Right. Or at least I had complicated feelings around it. Right. Has it been seductive? Yeah, of course. I think that's also human nature. Yeah. Right? Like you want to be wanted to a certain extent. Of course, it feels great when people decide that like you have this certain power that other people don't have. But I also feel weirdly yucky about that as well. I know. It makes me uncomfortable if the idea that anyone would ever think that like you couldn't come up and like have a normal conversation with me or like, you know, sometimes on sets you sort of experience this depending on the set and depending on who the higher up is. Where like sometimes they'll tell crew members not to talk to the actors. And that always really bothers me because that's my favorite part is developing friendships with the crew members. But also I'm a really shy person. So I always have a difficult time breaking that boundary and like jumping into those friendships and those situations. So I'm like, no, please don't say that. I want people to talk to me so that I can make friends here. You're right, though. There's definitely a separation between the actors and the crew. Yeah. And you like actively have to do it. Yeah. Again, it depends on who the higher ups are and like what type of atmosphere the set has. But yeah, sometimes that is the case and it gets weird. And the thought that like that could translate to my personal life outside of work is always scary to me. So I try to like do whatever I can to make people realize that there isn't any difference between me and anyone else. (laughs) But it can be intoxicating for sure. I know that you're doing a lot of press for Cherry. Mm -hmm. How do you think that you will reflect, let's say in two years, on your shooting experience and the experience of Cherry You know how memory like sharpens itself or it kind of modifies to like, that was fucking awesome or that was really rough. Right. And it's always somewhere in between. I've noticed the farther I get away from the experience, the more I remember the joy I had while shooting there. Because, of course, when you're shooting something so heavy, like when I'm fresh out of it, I remember all of the like heavy, super emotional places I had to go. And so it sort of carries that weight. But the farther I step away from it, that weight floats away and all of the good, beautiful, wonderful memories float to the top. Let's say you're about to do a scene in Cherry Mm -hmm. where you and Tom are shooting up or something like the 15 to 20 minutes before. What does that look like for you? That's a great question. Let me think back on it. Usually in our house in the movie, and we had this little green room upstairs. So it was usually (laughs) me and Tom and Tom's team, like his wonderful group of hair and makeup and his brother and everyone. And we would all be sitting in that green room, just bullshitting, like joking about something. Oh, that's amazing. Right. So it was always very light and very fun. 
it was like once we got called to set because, you know, you get called to set, you sit there for like five to 10 minutes before things really get moving anyway. And I think in those moments, that five to 10 minutes, that's when it was like, okay, pause on the laughter and we would drop down into where we needed to be. Yeah, you're like stepping up to plate. Exactly. And everything sort of clears away and you know where you need to go. But yeah, I knew we could always go back to that. And of course, if it was an extremely difficult scene and you had to be like sobbing or screaming or crying or whatever, I would always sort of seclude myself, like go off to a corner somewhere to just be alone. And everyone was very respectful about that. Some of those scenes, that's usually my memory is like sitting next to a heater in a tent, just (laughs) thinking. (laughs) Do you feel your strongest First take, 10th take, is it totally across the board? If I were to gauge myself, I feel like take two or take three is usually my sweet spot because I'm hard on myself. I'll go into a scene wanting to make sure I land it. Mm -hmm. And I've worked with actors who don't put that kind of pressure on themselves for the first few takes. Yeah. Usually they're comedians. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so lucky. No, I'm similar to you. I would say second or third take. I almost feel like there's a progression where it like starts down a little bit and then it gets better and better and better and then it peaks and then it drops off. It starts to get like worse and worse and worse. Yes, I'm with you with that. And if I'm not clear with the direction, (sighs) if that has not been articulated to me well, or if my head can't wrap around Mm -hmm. the direction, I will find myself searching for it so much in the moment that I'm straying from the presence. Right. I'm not present anymore as much. Yeah, I'm very familiar with that feeling. And then you start to get in your head and then it just sort of spirals from there. (laughs) Oh, there's nothing worse than getting a note that isn't articulated well or I feel like I don't understand. And then they keep giving like different versions of the same note. And then I'm like, oh my God, I'm terrible. I'm so bad at my job. I can't get this one note. I'm going to get fired. You know, yeah, that classic spiral. I know. And I was talking to one of the directors of Overboard the other day, and he did something that I'd never experienced before. Mm -hmm. We were doing a scene where my character's like, she's a little hurt or whatever. And I leaned in Mm -hmm. a little heavy with the hurt. And he came up to me and he's like, in this moment, like, don't get too emotional because Eugenio, my male lead, has an emotional beat like two minutes later. Mm -hmm. And I was taking away from that moment. And that made so much sense to me. Like, oh my God, okay, I was so grateful for the logic presented. Right. Instead of him just saying like, no, 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 don't get emotional right here. Mm -hmm. That, of course, like makes me defensive. Like, well, I think a logical person would. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I also think that's why it's important for actors to understand writing. I feel like to really do your job well, of course, I'm not a writer in any sense of the word, but to really do a great job, you have to understand a script in that way. And be able to like step outside of yourself, you know, your ego, which is so easy to have when you become attached to a character and try to like understand the story as a whole. Completely. It's also easy to forget the shape of things. Oh, yeah. When you're in it as well. It's not like you're shooting chronologically either. Right. Most of the time. That's a really good note. I know. A really good approach. <laughs> okay. What do you think is the meaning of life? Oh, my God. <sighs> What do you think is the meaning of life? It's obviously a tough question. I also think it's a little bit of an unfair question. But because I grew up in Seattle in the 90s, I have a deeply cynical sense. So when people in Los Angeles talk about the idea of being present, (laughs) I roll my eyes a little bit at the language, not the idea. But lately, I'm forcing myself to grow up and embrace this concept. Right. I was podcasting with somebody. Our guest was talking about eating an orange. 
And I loved that simple sentiment of appreciating moments, nurturing joy, love. I don't have any idea if that is the reason for our existence. Is there a reason? (laughs) It's a great way to exist, though. Yes. To feel. So I don't know if our imaginations are large enough as humans to wrap our brains around a larger purpose. Right. I agree with that wholeheartedly. I sure hope that I can live long enough for, like, you know, an alien experience. Oh, I'm like, take over. I'm ready. (laughs) I feel like as long as you guys have a better grasp on this whole living thing and existing, I'm down. Yeah, but what if they're fucking awesome actors? Exactly. (laughs) Sierra, what advice would you give your younger self? Okay, if I were to speak to my younger self, I would give the piece of advice that my friend Hannah gave me. It was just something that she mentioned and I think about mm, every day. She was like, if you want someone to be friends with you or if you want to be friends with someone, just treat them like you're already friends. And there's something about that that's so radical to me. It sounds so simple. It's so true, though. It's so true. Especially in our industry with women as we relate to each other. Mm -hmm. I feel like in my 20s, I was constantly comparing myself against all other women, but especially in our industry. Mm -hmm. And that jealousy kind of ate at me in a way that felt awful, like jealousy does. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if it was as overnight as this. But I remember thinking at some point, like, if I feel that jealousy gnawing at me, Mm -hmm. how I was going to combat it within myself was to befriend and love this person. And that's been a pretty awesome strategy, actually. (laughs) And I'll tell you what, nothing feels better than being excited for your friends. It's the best feeling in the whole entire world. And in an industry that already takes so much from you, yeah, to be able to take that back for yourself. Completely. Right? It's the best feeling. It's so empowering. It requires discipline. It does. But you're right. It is so rewarding right. on a fundamental level. Just like you don't have that physical bad feeling inside of yourself that's making you a less attractive person. Right. And then you get to be happy for people that you love and respect and enjoy. Are you kidding me? It's win-win. Yeah. Of course, that other voice is allowed to exist. It's probably going to exist. But to choose to be happy and celebrate the other people in this industry, especially ones that you consider friends, God, it's the best feeling in the world. Well, Ciara, I think you are so impressive and I've just loved talking with you. Thank you very much. This past, what, 11, almost 12 months have been taxing emotionally. So it means the world that you're sitting here with me and giving me the time and the presence. It was a joy to talk to you. I've always been such a big fan. So this was, my mom's going to be so psyched and my sister. Thanks so much, Sierra. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. 
Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60. Hey everyone, I am so happy to have Dr. Lisa Marie Bobby back, and I know you are too. Here she is. Hi, Dr. Bobby. It's great to see you. Thank you for doing this. Hello, Anna. I'm excited to be here with you today. All right, let's call Molly. Hello. Hi, Molly. Thanks for writing in and talking with us. Of course. Thank you. I'm so excited. I am here with Dr. Bobby. She's the founder and clinical director of Growing Self Counseling and Coaching in Denver, Colorado, and she is fantastic. Hi, Molly. Hi, Dr. Bobby. How are you? Hi, I'm great. I'm excited to talk to you. So, Molly, tell us what is happening. It's kind of just, a, it's been a crazy year, like all around. But basically, I moved to San Francisco from Boston about a year and a half ago. And I didn't know anybody. Like, I just like moved here, like kind of on a whim for work. And within a few months, started bartending just to try to like meet people and make friends. And ended up meeting my boyfriend. And a couple months later, the quarantine happened, like everything shut down. So him and I kind of were forced to like, become really serious, really fast. Like we just hung out all the time. We lived like really close to each other. So we could just like walk to each other's like apartments, and just kind of like fell hard real fast for each other. And it was like wonderful. But about a month ago, the bar reopened. He went back to work. I didn't go back to working at the bar. And he does bartending like as a way to just kind of supplement his life. But really, he's an artist. He's a writer. Like He really wants to pursue that. So I think right now, he feels like a little stuck in life. And he basically told me that he feels really stuck because he just can't figure out how to pursue like his passion and kind of just decided that the thing to go was our relationship so he could focus on writing and painting and really make something for himself. So I took it really hard. And that was about a month ago. And then we've had a few conversations since then. And the most recent one, he said that he feels like he kind of did that on a whim and would love to like, try to figure out how he can pursue all of this and, you know, work on our relationship at the same time. So I kind of am hesitant now because I'm just kind of like, well, I don't want you to just feel stuck and then break my heart every time that happens. Yeah, he's rendered you powerless. Exactly. So. <laughs> 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 no, that's so true. So it's just like so like messy now. And it just wasn't like our relationship was really beautiful and really easy. We really didn't fight. Like it really blindsided me. And now I'm just all confused. So. Molly, do you mind if I read from your letter for a second? Of course, yeah. You write, recently he told me he needs to grow and find himself and feels like he needs the kind of growth that comes from being uncomfortable, which that is 
tough to hear because it's like, are you supposed to just sit back and wait till he finds himself? No, no. I mean, he basically said in so many words, he was like, I would never ask you to wait for me. Like, I know that's not fair to you. But again, like recently, it's been more he wants to make both work. So it's a weird situation. So I don't think he's really asking me to put my life on hold. But I think he kind of realized in the months that we were separated that we were really happy. And I don't think there was really a reason for it. (laughs) How frequently do you guys speak now? Probably it was about once a week. And then in the last like five or so days, it's been pretty much every day. Does he call you? It's pretty equal. I mean, at first it was him calling me a lot. I feel like trying to kind of like win me back in a way. But now I feel like we're trying to kind of figure stuff out. Like I should put in a little bit of effort as well. So it's been equal now. Well, Molly, if I could also ask, um, what is your understanding of what this guy is trying to accomplish through his separation from you? What in his mind would be different for him? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that something he said in one of our more recent conversations was, like I said, we saw each other every single day, um, like before work, after work, like grabbing coffee, grabbing a drink. So he felt like if he asked for some more space in our relationship and for, you know, some more time apart during the week that I wouldn't have received that well, that I would have not given that to him, which in turn, I said, of course I would have, like I would have done anything for you to follow your dreams and support you in any way I could. So I think that's why he was like, oh, okay, cool. Like, let's get back together then. So I'm like, well, wait a minute. No. So yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me though. So I'm a marriage and family therapist. And so a lot of what I do is helping couples negotiate exactly these kinds of things. And can I also ask, how old are you, Molly? And how old is this fellow you're dating? We are both approaching 27. Okay. Okay. So still like young people. And, you know, I think it's so important because, Anna, I'm sure you've met people like this in your life. There is often, particularly for artistic people, it requires creativity and the generation of art requires this like internal experience that takes a lot of time and energy. My husband is a photographer and he also struggles with this because I think a lot of artists almost feel like they need to be selfish in a way and have this time and space apart. And I'm almost hearing that this guy is trying to figure out if that's okay and how to communicate that and kind of wrestling with these internal fears that that isn't okay, that he's being selfish in some ways where you're saying, no, I can hear that. But he didn't know that. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think like it's nice to talk to you and, and Anna because I feel like friends and family, of course, they love me so dearly that they hear that like he broke up with me and it's immediately like, oh, forget him, move on. He's a jerk. And I'm like, oh, no, that's not like I, I totally want to understand where he's coming from and see it from that perspective as well. So it's nice to hear that, of course, him being an artist and being in that world he does feel like he needs that heaviness and like darkness to produce certain things. And I get that, but, you know, because our relationship's happy all the time, you know, I get that he wasn't really feeling motivated to Where's the angst? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I do wonder, because I have heard versions of this, the idea of like artistry through pain and loneliness 
And that kind of mentality sometimes strikes me as a little bit immature and selfish and perhaps necessary for some artists, or at least who am I to judge anybody? I've felt these feelings before too. But if that mentality is solidified or cemented at all in his head, of course, that's not conducive to a healthy, really healthy, happy relationship. If he's like, I need to be tortured and you're not fucking torturing me enough. <laughs> that's something that you can't, that no person could fill. After talking with you, it seems like what you guys had was genuinely wonderful. I always have talked about like, you know, the idea of protecting your heart. And like you were saying, Dr. Bobby, you can assess the behavior that you've witnessed. Mm-hmm. Another like layer of this that's been really hard is typically in past relationships, they've been like around my family um, and I've really introduced them like in that way. But due to like quarantine, like we did go home and he met my family once. But other than that, they really haven't seen us like together. So they really don't know him. Not that I'm trying to be that teenager, like you don't even know him. But like that's kind of how I feel is they don't and they don't know our relationship. So it that's kind of a, a layer to this that's difficult as well, because although they are loyal to me and know me so well, I don't feel like they knew my relationship as well as we did. Yeah. Molly, how dramatic of a relationship was it when you guys were full force having a great time? Like how frequently were arguments and stuff like that? Very infrequent. I mean, when I think about him and our relationship, he's like the classic, like, 80s boyfriend that all girls kind of want like he just does a lot of sweet things like one time we did have a bit of an argument it was very small and it was just like a miscommunication thing and he showed up outside my apartment building with a speaker like playing our song like in the alleyway and like you know he does stuff like that like he's such a romantic I love the big gestures yeah yeah, exactly (laughs) so it's been like that the whole time and even if we do have an argument, it's like quickly resolved. This is like the first time, you know, and that's what I feel a bit confused about. I was like, through everything like that we've been able to openly talk about, like you really didn't think you could talk about this with me and we could come up with a solution. I think that's why in my gut, I'm like, okay, did he just want the relationship to end? And this is kind of like a scapegoat. Like, I don't really know. So now we're back, you know, was it too uncomfortable to be apart? And now he's like, Oh, nope, going, going back, going back. So I don't know. It's weird. I'm I'm not quite sure how to feel about it. <laughs> the reason why I asked that question about you calling him or him calling you is that because he shook the balance of your relationship by breaking up, I worry that at this juncture, you're being maybe a little more generous, which may lead you to some vulnerability, which may lead to cloudier decision making. You can't convince him to love you. No one can convince anybody to love anybody else, you know, no matter how hard we try. Mm -hmm. Dr. Bobby, Molly, in talking with you, my sense of you, and I'm just going to ask, is that you are just a fundamentally, like, pretty secure, emotionally healthy person. Is that generally true? Yes. 
<laughs> okay. And so with that in mind, like you're having a very appropriate response. It felt good. It felt like a stable relationship. You're enjoying each other. And then he just sort of like withdrew in this way mm-hmm. that hurt your feelings and confused you. And now appropriately, you're like, can I, can I trust you? What's going on? But okay, so there are certainly situations where we get to know people over time and learn that maybe they're not going to be great partners for us. And we should certainly trust that. But the other piece of this and what I'm kind of hearing in your story, Molly, is that it's also true that people grow in relationships because of the relationships. So for example, this guy, young man, perhaps due to his own life experiences, learned that he couldn't talk about his needs openly, or if he wanted something, he would get in trouble or people would get mad at him. And so he sort of has this basic expectation in relationships that if he is going to take care of himself or have his emotional needs met, he needs to withdraw. So that's his like basic map of the world. But through his relationship with you, Molly, and because it sounds like you were able to be an emotionally safe person for him, you were able to say, what's going on with that? Why did you withdraw from me? And he's like, I feel like, you know, I have to choose. I can't do my art or you. I feel like I can't ask for the time that I need. And you were like... Yeah, you can. He's like, really? <laughs> and that changed something for him. No, really, because like, yeah, he's, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. growing, right? And it's like you were saying before, Anna, you were like, I don't know if this guy can only make art when he's angsty. It's like, you know, if somebody can only be creative when they're high, like that is problematic. And that can be sort of the, the growth journey for creative people is how do I connect with my creative self, make my art amidst the banality of life. I think some of the most powerful artists have figured out a way to do that. And he is perhaps still on that journey, but he's talking about that with you, which is a sign of a lot of strength. Yeah. I mean, that makes so much sense. (laughs) Molly, let's say if we were to hang up right now and Dr. Bobby and I were like, you know what? We give our stamp of approval for this dude. Go run into his arms. How would that make you feel? Would you feel relieved or would you feel confused? I think maybe in the moment relieved, but I know myself and like as time goes on, my mind might wander a bit and then I might fall back into like all of the questions, all of the, you know, uncertainty. I think I'm kind of battling it a little bit because Dr. Bobby, I think you hit the nail on the head. Like, I want to trust that he's expressing himself now and he's kind of like, oh, like I can talk to you about stuff, but I guess what I need from him at this point is to be like, okay, I'm not going to run again. If I feel this way, I'm going to communicate it with you. But there's, there's also what's happening here inside of you right now, Molly, is that you're, you're trying to close this loop and make a decision about what you should do before you have all the information. And I know that this has been an important relationship and you guys have been together for a while, but it takes a long time to get to know people. And that character is revealed when people are stressed out, when people are, you know, like trying to figure 
figure out how to communicate. And so it's not the fact that people, you know, have issues or say the wrong thing or do weird stuff sometimes. It's are they emotionally intelligent enough to be able to talk about it, to be able to own it, to be able to, you know, try to do things a little bit differently. And now you're having the opportunity to work through it with him and see what happens. Does it lead to growth and change in him and in your relationship? It might and it might not, mm -hmm. but it takes time to see. You don't have that information yet, but I hear you trying to make decisions about whether or not to stay in a relationship before you know, and that's a hard place to be in. Mm -hmm. Honestly, like when I heard what was going on with Molly, that first red flag is like, uh-oh, this guy is saying like he's not ready to be in a relationship or something, which is often a red flag that can lead to bad outcomes for women. But like in talking to Molly about what is actually happening, you know, I, I think I'm putting my marriage counselor hat back on and going back to this idea that nobody knows how to do relationships. Nobody teaches us like how to have a healthy relationship. We have to have these life experiences and grow with a partner often when we figure it out. It sounds like that could be what is happening here, potentially. Molly, when you guys talk on the phone of late, does he still reiterate that he needs time? And you guys are talking for a long time, but is he still maintaining that distance that he wants? Yeah, I think so. Like I said, we used to see each other every day and we had dinner, but we have plans tomorrow night to have dinner. So I think we're kind of almost reverting back to like normal dating. Like let's grab dinner Friday night. Like that would be lovely, you know, instead of the like, okay, coffee this morning. Okay. Drink after work. Okay. I'll stay at your place tonight. You'll stay at my place tomorrow. Like it's not that anymore. So I think that's a good thing. And then he also told me that this weekend, my mom is actually coming into town and we both live in the city. So we don't have cars. So he said that he rented a car for Saturday and he's just going to like drive and like go somewhere. And I was like, that's great. So I'm, I'm seeing like positive things this week happening. Totally. So I am seeing like that. Yes, we're keeping our distance maybe physically, but you know, we're still at least checking in on each other every day. So yes and no. <laughs> but this is also really healthy because I don't know if you guys have encountered this. I'm sure you probably have, but one of the phenomena of our, our pandemic age is that particularly in new relationships during quarantine, People have gone very deeply into relationships almost too quickly. So it's exactly like what you're describing, Molly, like this night and day, like we are all of a sudden, you know, pretending like we've been married for five years. Yes. When in fact, we've been <laughs> dating for a couple of months and it's like too much togetherness in a way that feels sort of stifling and almost like chokes the, the healthy individuation of both partners. And so what you see, um, what we have seen during the pandemic, is that people who kind of like glom onto each other super quickly, it will either explode quite dramatically or they sort of revert back to a more healthy, interdependent kind of relationship, which it sounds like you guys are doing. That's great. <laughs> I like that idea, Dr. Bobby, of looking at a pandemic relationship yeah. through a different lens. Like it's like we can't necessarily judge no. a relationship <laughs> because it's unusual circumstances. Right? Like, it is. And when people are scared or threatened,
threatened, our instinct is to attach. And Molly, what I think an important detail of your story is that you moved far away from home to a new place where you didn't know anybody. And then all this crazy stuff started happening in the world. And so mm-hmm. normally, I mean, in a very healthy way, it's like, where's my family? Where's my person? Where's my attachment? You know, and like seeking to create that, which, you know, would explain why this relationship happened so powerfully and so quickly. But yeah, relationships that start very quickly and intensely are typically less healthy than relationships mm-hmm. that kind of grow over time. Because what happens is that we we develop this huge attachment to somebody that we don't know very well yet. Everybody is a weirdo in their own way, and it takes time to figure out what that is. And so, like, we need a little bit of psychological distance and to almost, like, not depend on somebody so much, you know, so we can each be standing on our own two feet as we're getting to know each other over time. And Molly, you guys are shifting back into that. He's saying this felt like too much too fast. I need to have time and space for my art. And you are saying, yes, I need to spend this weekend with my mom and maybe not see you every single day, morning, noon, and night. That's good. Mm -hmm. And it's not blowing up your relationship. You guys are talking about it. This is a very good sign to me. Your mom's coming to visit. Is your ex planning on being around? It doesn't even feel quite correct to call him your ex, actually. We just keep kind of telling people we're working on it. So I wanted a little more clarity on that. And I was like, I just want to know, like, you're at least committed to me in like a like faithful way. I was like, the label is not super important, but I, I don't think X would be like exactly correct, but I don't know if I'm like totally on board to be like, he's my boyfriend either. So I don't right, know. <laughs> right, right. What did he say to you when you said that you wanted clarification? He responded very well. I mean, he has always reassured me that there's like no one else. That's something I think I just need to accept internally. That's nothing I can constantly look for like reassurance from him for. He's at least like expressed there, there's no one else. Like it's just you. Like I'm committed to you. You know, it's, it's truly about everything we talked about. You know, there's no hidden, you know, agenda here. So to answer your question about my mom, she's been planning on coming out for quite some time. And we wanted our moms to meet because they're very similar and we thought it would be fun. So we are going out like him, me and his mom and my mom um, one night. So a mom I'm, I'm play really date. excited. A mom play date. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this all sounds pretty encouraging, Molly. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's worth talking about. And Molly, maybe this is a question for you. I mean, what is the difference qualitatively between a healthy promising and young developing relationship versus some of the warning signs of an unhealthy relationship. And Molly, even just talking to you, like there is this sort of very healthy, in my opinion, kind of wait and see, take it slow, let's see how it goes. We're still getting to know each (laughs) other. That to me is one of the hallmarks of a very healthy developing relationship. And the fact that you guys are able to have authentic conversations about the things that you're experiencing. And also, like Molly, this is very, very common for men, especially young men, who, let's face it, are not socialized to talk about their feelings the way that women do. A lot of times men will kind of shut down and withdraw because they don't know how to 
you know, do the thing that sometimes feels easier for women, which is to say, this is what's going on for me. And so this is not an uncommon pattern. But the fact that he's able to stay in the ring with you and help you understand him and that you provided emotional safety for him to do that and didn't get mad at him or punish him or like freak out because, I mean, these these are good, promising signs that would indicate to me at least the potential for a healthy relationship. Yellow to green light. <laughs> I love that assessment. <laughs> but it will be interesting and revealing, I think, if your mom thinks that this is a good fit, that he takes care of your heart. It sounds like he does to me. It sounds like he is a considerate person. Mm -hmm. The red flag from my own past is the tortured artist thing. But, <laughs> yeah. but sometimes people... If they are suddenly pretty happy and content in a way that they haven't been for a long time, that can maybe rattle somebody. Don't you think, Dr. Bobby? Yeah, if they haven't figured out how to tap into their creativity without that, it can be problematic because what it can happen is it's like a series of very dramatic and devastated kind of relationships where people are trying to make themselves feel a certain way in order for them to connect with their art. But I think that there are also a lot of role models and examples of people who haven't done that. Like William Eggleston is a photographer who took like these amazing photographs of like the parking lot of a supermarket in the afternoon. It was like very kind of normal stuff, but it is like sublime. And I think it's a real journey for artists to figure out how to stay connected with that creative part of themselves while existing in the world, especially as they get older. You know, they may have a job or a family or kids. How do I stay passionate and also deal with making breakfast and doing laundry and doing all the things that, yeah, are not inspiring unless you can figure out a way to make them be? And that's a real existential crisis, I think, for many working artists, in my experience. Molly, I don't know if I would vocalize this to him. It feels like the ice is solid enough to walk on. But I think, Molly, you should kind of keep this to yourself without telling him. It sounds like as he finds himself, he may cling on to things like, I can't handle a deadline or, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You kind of have this window where you can kind of take into account what is really working for you and what you really love. He kind of gave you that gift in a weird way of being able to assess what you like. Wonderful point. And then on that note, Molly, like for you, knowing yourself the way you do, what to you, to Anna's point, would be like green light. This is this is okay. Keep going. What mm -hmm. would be a yellow light? And what is a red light? Like how would you know if this was working or not for you? Yeah, that's tough because something I was going to mention is I, I come from a long line of divorced people, parents, aunts, uncles, like like I've never truly seen many successful <laughs> relationships. Molly, you have a family of romantics. <laughs> oh, God, I've never seen a lot of success. So I grab like wisdom where I can take it. But I think that's hard. I, I because I haven't seen a lot of relationships go the distance. And even in my own mm -hmm. life, my longest one was two years. And I think in my later 20s, it would need to be like some sort of agreeance that like, at some point it needs to be like, we're in this, like, for the long haul, we're gonna work through whatever we face, you know, I'm a big commitment person. 
And I think the red light would be, I can't give you that. Right. Well, and it's such a paradox because when you're still getting to know someone, it is inappropriate Mm -hmm. to like pledge your undying love. Right. But at the same time, you're saying that this is what you really want in order to feel safe and like it is a good relationship. So I think and I hope this isn't overstepping, but it sounds like where his growth moment could be, how do I talk about how I'm feeling that perhaps your growth moment is, how do I stay in the ring with someone emotionally mm-hmm. when I'm not totally sure what's going to happen? How do I tell the difference between a healthy and unhealthy relationship? I'll just spill the beans. Is yeah, it, Dr. Bobby, how, how do we do this? <laughs> The healthiest, best relationships are not the absence of conflict or the absence of issues or stuff. All couples have this. It is the ability to work through them successfully together. You know, we we knock the corners off each other over time and we grow because of these interactions. So it's to have a conflict and then be like, okay, what happened? Well, here's what was going on for me. What was going on for you? And be like, okay, that makes sense. What are we going to do next time? That's the engine of growth. So it's not the absence of conflict, but Molly, that might potentially feel scary for you. Because sometimes what happens is children whose all their families divorce, conflict feels incredibly threatening because conflict equals abandonment. In, in their sort of emotional mind. And so they tend to yep. become very conflict avoidant. And if there is a conflict, I have to try to make it go away because otherwise something bad will happen, which is actually the opposite of what we need to do in healthy relationships, which is to have courageous conversations and very openly address. I mean, all conflict is, is the opportunity to get to know your partner better. There's really nothing to fight about. It's an opportunity for connection. And so to kind of transform it into that and figure out how to lean in as opposed to get scared. Is it possible that's a growth area for you, Molly? Totally. I think that's exactly right. I'm I'm constantly like overly forgiving instead of truly expressing things because I truly feel like, you know, when I've reached this level of like love and happiness with someone that for me, I would want to kind of be like, okay, we can work through anything. I mean, if I truly felt like it was toxic or unhealthy, I wouldn't yeah. like kind of fight for it this hard, but I don't feel that. That's my sense of you. Yeah. So, but you're right. I do tend to, with conflict, I, I am avoidant at all costs. So I think that's definitely something to work on. Well, and it sounds like you might have a wonderful opportunity in this relationship to kind of like feel that fear and then be able to lean in and be like, okay, what was going on? Dr. Bobby, when I read Molly's letter, I was just worried about her and I her was getting too. hurt. Yes. But I love it that you saw potential in this relationship and want to be more encouraging of it and help it succeed. And it feels like, Molly, you would be really kind of comfortable maybe with that, right? Absolutely. I'm thrilled that that's the the take. I think, you know, just being a very frequent listener to this podcast, like I I know like it could be brutally honest sometimes. So, I'm Oh very, god. Thanks no, Molly for listening. <laughs> um, but I'm thrilled that this is the, you know, the path. It was great to get a, a different perspective than just 
the typical like friends and family, like there's plenty of fish in the sea, like don't hang on to this too hard. But no, I think it's great to hear the the support and, you know, the guidance to try to continue and, and find that balance and make it work. So I think it was great. Molly, thank you so much for talking with us. And please let us know how things go because I can marry people. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I became a minister. Did Nobody you? asked me to marry them. But later oh. on they did. But it was a middle of the night decision. And so I, I registered, what is it, the Universal Life Church? I did not know that. It requires your birth date <laughs> and nine ninety nine. <laughs> you too can become a minister. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Molly, I'm excited for you. I hope that you guys have great adventures together as we come out of this. I hope that he protects you and can work through the normal angst that is in his gut. And hopefully he can work through that and not push you away. Not scare you into withdrawing. Yeah. But Molly, if he does, you know, be wary of that mm -hmm. because that can yank you around a bit. Agreed. Cautiously optimistic if growth is possible, but Anna is exactly right. If this becomes a pattern and you're having to chase him around to tell you how he feels and he's you know, not able to communicate his needs and, and you find yourself like kind of frantically pacifying him in order to avoid conflict. Those are signs that it is maybe not a good match. Hey, Molly, thank you so much. I know we're going to get a lot of people responding and I so appreciate you being open. Thank you both so much, Anna and Dr. Bobby. I really appreciate it. It was wonderful. Good luck to you, Molly. Thank you. Thanks again, Molly. Take care. <laughs> thank you both. Bye. Okay, bye. Dr. Bobby, thank you again. It has been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.